This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Remember Seattle's deadly Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, also known as CHAZ, which later morphed into CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest Zone? This was all set up last summer in the wake of George Floyd's death and after eight days of violent leftist conflict with Seattle police, who then vacated an East Precinct building. But by July, you'll recall that dozens of Seattle police cleared out the area under the mayor's order after more violence, including a nine-day stretch of time that saw vandalism and rioting, several alleged sexual assaults, four shootings, two deaths, and arson. Now, the entire situation was an outrage and a disgrace to Seattle. And as we know, the attacks on law enforcement continue all across the country with calls for defunding and even dismantling police departments. Now, here's the question. Who is behind this anti-police movement? What are its sources of funding and what are the tactics it's using to fundamentally change law enforcement? as we know it. We're going to talk about it today with Steve Popper, who is a retired Seattle police officer and a National Police Association contributor. And he's also author of the book we'll be discussing called The Obama Gang. There's a name we know. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Great to have you here. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Now, you have obviously a really good perspective on this whole issue, having served as a Seattle police officer, looking back on everything that went on, not just in Seattle, but across the nation in our police departments from coast to coast. What's your reaction in general to the fact that this ever happened in the first place? Well, it really didn't have to happen, at least not to the degree. I mean, my perspective is even, uh, you know, more illuminating seeing that I was at the East Precinct for over 20 years of my career. And so it was very, very heartbreaking to see what happened this year. But if I if I go back to think of where the pivot point was, I really think the pivot point was um, in um, Minneapolis when the mayor had a chance to stop it there. I mean, like you mentioned in the opening, um, when the police are allowed to go in, they do it. I mean, they they take control and things are are brought, um, you know, back to public order. In in Seattle, you saw that with, uh, you know, the the mayor allowed them to take the the area, take the precinct. And then within an hour, I think less than an hour, a few dozen Seattle police officers took it back. And if that had happened, if Jacob Fry in Minneapolis had allowed that to happen with their, I think it was the third precinct in Minneapolis, and stopped it at that point, I think that that would have reduced the the uh, damage across the country by a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. That That's the question that a lot of people have. It, it wasn't just that we were watching the violence in the streets and, you know, whether it was Black Lives Matter or Antifa or whoever was the name of the group that was there at the moment, but seeing some of these politicians seemingly unwilling to jump in and do their jobs. And that was true in a lot of different cities. And that's what you're really addressing here is the boss behind it all. Can you tell us what really was going on? and what's continuing to go on as far as the funding and as far as the organization that's going on with all of these protests and riots that we've seen over the past year? 
Sure. Um, I jumped at the chance to write this book for the National Police Association because I thought it was a good way to push back against what's been happening with trying to crush traditional America. And so what we did is we, we noticed that uh, Obama still seemed to be in the game of uh, trying to damage, destroy, defund whatever police departments. He's never had um, you know a fond feeling, it seems, for police officers, which started with the whole, um, you know, the uh, Cambridge police acted stupidly, yep. and Trayvon Martin could have been my son. I mean, all these things that he, he went back and did, and then, and then more recently, um, you know, at the uh, uh, funeral um, at, uh, I'm, I'm missing his name right now, but uh, a funeral of a congressman who, uh, while during that supposed uh, uh, eulogy, he actually used the phrase, uh, law enforcement officers using batons on peaceful protesters, Ugh. which doesn't happen, you know, and that just, uh, just maybe, oh, it was John Lewis. Uh, it, it just absolutely makes me sick that, that, you know, he went to that point. But what we saw is we noticed a story from Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, where this mayor had gotten rid of the uh, SWAT team's uh, armored vehicle. Uh, it seemed, seemed seemingly out of nowhere. So we looked into it a little bit deeper and found that the mayor had signed what was called the My Brother's Keeper's Alliance Pledge or the Re- Reimagining Police Pledge. And what they do, they've got 300 mayors so far to sign this from the Obama Foundation. Um, and what they do is they promise to review the use of force of police departments and then engage the public, meaning just getting anecdotes from who knows who they're going to talk to, um, come back with findings. And then I like this one reform the police. It doesn't say if we if we find something wrong, we're going to reform the police. No, it's just predetermined. We're going to, um, you know, basically, you know, re, uh, defund or whatever they want to do. And that's what was happening. We found that's happening all over America, that where Obama went in with this pledge, the cities started to go after the police. It's crazy. I mean, this is a really important find here because the reimagining policing pledge that you just mentioned kind of centers around this idea, this false idea, in my view, of systemic racism. Right. And they don't even have to prove it necessarily. No, not at all. I mean, they did that when uh, when the Obama administration came into the Seattle Police Department uh, with basically a predetermined finding of guilt that we were abusing people when we were, uh, you know, using force on the job when we had to for arrests. And they came in and they decided that uh, we were being racist and that was how it was going to go. They refused to release their methodology as to how they came up with their just ridiculous numbers of, for being able to uh, you know, get a consent decree on the department. And even though there was a Seattle University professor, a uh, criminal justice professor, who absolutely took the same numbers and totally debunked their study <laughs> and actually suggested that Seattle tell them, you know, tell the DOJ to go packing and demand an apology. Uh, the city still went for it, you know, the very leftist city in Seattle. And uh, that that uh, consent decree is still on the department today, almost 10 years later. Well, now this reimagining policing pledge, was that something that the Obama Foundation put out on its own? Or is there an author behind it? I mean, what do we know about who's behind this whole thing? Yeah, no, this came directly from the Obama Foundation. Um, he formed that in 2014, you know, two years before he left office. And he, um, uh, when he did that, uh, he did it through his My Brother's Keepers Alliance, which does some good things, you know, as far as keeping, you know, black youth out of trouble and in school and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes to policing, um, it basically, they decided that, uh, no, they, they wanted to come after the police and change policing because they cannot 
install their socialism or inflict their Marxism on us unless they get the police on their side. And there's only two ways to do it. You either defund and abolish them or you bring them under federal control. Well, that's the scary part. So what is the upshot of signing this pledge? What do mayors go on to do or what are they supposed to be doing after they sign on to that pledge to combat alleged systemic racism in their police department? What do they do? Go through and fire all the white police officers or what's the plan from there? Well, actually, that's uh, not far off the beam because that's in Seattle. That's what the city council person actually uh, said she wanted to do. Because wow. what they wanted to do is they wanted, uh, if you remember, uh, Chief Carmen Best, she ended up retiring because she wouldn't do this. Yep. But they wanted her to basically fire 100 officers. And this particular city council person wanted them to do it based on race. <laughs> and the thing is, is when you do that, you're not taking into consideration how long the officer's been on the department, the, the longevity, the, you know, the veteran status. And so they didn't care about that. It all became a virtue signal that they just wanted to, you know, change the department to reflect their fantasy vision of what they think a police department should be. Goodness. So are there more mayors lined up to sign on to this thing? How much traction, how much momentum does this pledge have at the moment? Do you know? Well, the thing is, is uh, what we've seen is 300 seems to be the, the number, but I can't imagine that people haven't still, you know, been signing. But I think what they've done since there's been a little bit of attention called to it, they've kind of gone a little bit underground. Yeah. And just like with Soros funding all the uh, non-prosecuting prosecutors across the country, it's difficult to find the information about where the funding is coming from now because Soros has done such a good job of, oh, the, 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 we, we uh, note in the book, uh, detail in the book, the just the fog, the web of organizations that are overlapping. It's almost like every time you look at an organization that's formed that supports, you know, the Obama Foundation or, or whatever sort of supports all the leftist uh, things, they, they come up with two or three other, you know, subgroups at the same time so they can just send money to one group that sends money to another group that sends money to another group that finally gets to its goal. So it's it's difficult to backtrack at that point. Well, it is. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back, though. Steve Popper with us. The Obama Gang is the name of his book. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, tell us what Liberty HealthShare is all about. Well, Liberty HealthShare is a network of men, women, and children all across this country who voluntarily share medical bills with one another. And we do so without the advent of any kind of government program or third-party insurance. We're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another. It's what you would normally do with people whenever you had a situation that was unexpected and unaffordable. It'd be your friends and family and community that you would turn to. So we're a group of people sharing each other's medical bills with one another. How does Liberty HealthShare respect your conscience as a Christian? Well, as Christians, we are very much pro-life. And as an organization, we respect that as well. So you can be rest assured that if you are a part of Liberty HealthShare, none of your share amounts are going towards things that would violate your conscience. So we would never contribute or share money in something that would result in the end of an abortion or or go towards an abortifacient drug, that's not who we are at all because we know that's not who you are at all. 
Is Liberty HealthShare affordable? Well, a lot of people seem to think so. Uh, and that's a big part of uh, what we're about. We feel that it's immoral to add expense or to uh, have backdoor pricing on a lot of health care bills. And so with Liberty HealthShare, we've done all that we can do to make the Christian tradition of health care sharing available and affordable to all. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. That's 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I really like this line. There are so many good ones in the book, The Obama Gang by Steve Pomper, who is a contributor at the National Police Association and is a retired Seattle police officer, who says one major component of the anarchist, socialist, and Marxist plan to eradicate traditional America is to eliminate the cops first. And Steve, I think you're spot on about that. You were mentioning the way that the left often works. I think of the name Soros, which you mentioned, George Soros. He's notorious for doing this. They'll fund groups, which fund groups, which then get the money where they want it eventually to go. But there's you have to kind of hopscotch over in order to trace the money line. Talk about the Obama gang organizational chart a little bit, because this is fascinating. You've got the Obama Foundation, as you say, at the top. Here's the boss, Barack Obama. Then underneath, yeah, then underneath, you've got Eric Holder, his former attorney general. Then you have George Soros, the underboss. Who else is helping here? Who's all involved in this whole effort to undermine and and maybe get rid of law enforcement if they could have their way? Yeah, in uh, keeping with the theme of the the mafia type thing, what we did is we we put, uh, you know, several... Um, executives would be considered like the captains or capos, you know, uh, that sit above. And that would be like mayors, city councils, and prosecutors. Yeah. And then we also said groups like the ACLU that has a lot of influence, um, which they also serve as, we also have another, we talk about soldiers, and those are the people that actually go into the streets. And you know the ACLU always has those uh, legal representatives that go in and they, they basically become, they're, they're activists and lawyers depending on, or, or you know, uh, paramil- paralegals or whatever, when it suits them. They kind of blend in and out of the uh, activist and then uh, uh, observer role. Right. So they can be both. But then we had other, you know, the others, you've got all the organizations, you know, Media Matters, Move On, all, I mean, it's just, there's so many, and they, they serve the purposes um, of, you know, basically uh, doing the bidding of the boss, and that already, that goes all the way up to Obama, and, you know, when we first started writing this, um, of course, you know, Biden was not in office yet, and now we're finding out that parallel to our story about him staying in charge of, of getting rid of the police is we're hearing all the stories and evidence of him actually being in charge of what's going on at the federal level in the Biden administration right yeah. now as well. Yeah, yep. A lot of people are talking about that. Now, you know what I find interesting in all of this is when you go back, you had mentioned some of the Obama anti-police remarks where he talked about, uh, you know, the professor Henry Gates and, you know, the, the, right. the, I should say at the outset, Skip Gates is a friend. And he said, you know, I don't know all the facts, but, <laughs> you know, this exactly. is <laughs> it's not going to not going to stop him from saying that, that this is a problem. Problem, the Cambridge police, but also the Trayvon Martin comment. You mentioned that before, right. but how significant would you say the Ferguson mayhem was to enabling Obama to move public opinion toward more of a race war? Because really, that's what's underlying, in my opinion, all of this stuff. He wanted to ignite a race war among Americans yeah. who up to that point were pretty much happy with each other. That was a yeah. turning point. And I'm wondering from a police officer's perspective, how you see 2014 as having laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now. 
Yeah, it's it's so significant that if, in fact, while I was doing my research for the book, a lot of the websites I went to, including some from the, you know, are under the Obama uh, Foundation auspices, they they still show people standing there with their hands up. You know, something that we know didn't happen. (laughs) And ironically, we know it because Obama's own DOJ told us it never happened. Right. And yet that is still something they run with. All the BLM people run with that, you know, with that narrative. And they're going to keep, uh, you know, pushing it out there as long as they can because it's effective. I mean, it's basically what uh, BLM, you know, um, after the Trayvon Martin incident, which they used George Zimmerman, the white Hispanic, as a uh, surrogate for police. Well, in this case, they were able to get an actual cop, Darren Wilson, and make him the devil. You know, and, uh, and and that's what pretty much happened. It was terrible. So it seems like mm-hmm. this is a long time plot. You start a race war. You make people turn against each other in the name of race. And now you've got this extra component of the Biden administration focusing on white extremists, domestic mm-hmm. terrorists, as they like to say, because this is the biggest threat, clearly, in America, not Antifa, not Black Lives Matter and the extremists in the streets, setting fires, killing people, including black police officers like David Dorn. And that's no problem. That's just not right. a big deal. That was peaceful protest testing as the buildings are on fire in Kenosha. How does this square, though, when we're seeing the Biden administration now wanting to target whites and using the January 6th, quote unquote, insurrection as an excuse for all of this? How do you think this might tie into this whole other movement of trying to delegitimize the police? Oh, they're definitely related. Um, they're definitely together. One one goes with the other for them. You know, I've never seen a situation where, uh, you know, the term gaslighting is so appropriate. Yep. You know, you th- they're, they're really saying you're not seeing what you're seeing. I mean, as far as the, uh, the you know, January 6th insurrection, that is, that is like the worst insurrection I've ever seen in the history of the world. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, when, when you, you know, an armed insurrection, what, what were the arms, the horns on that guy's ass? <laughs> right, you know, it's, like, right. you know it's, it's so ridiculous, you know, when, when only one shot is fired and it's fired against an unarmed protester, and we still don't even know what's going on, yep. and all the secrets they're keeping. You know, they want to form this committee, you know, to, like the 9-11 Commission, to, to study this whole thing now, and yet they won't even let the most basic information come out because Congress exempts their own police department from releasing information that every other police department in the nation has to do. Wow. And we're missing a lot of the footage, too, from January 6th. There's a lot of oh, secrecy. a lot. Thousands and thousands, yeah. Incredible. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. Well, now, how yep. how are all the police officers, I know you're in touch with a lot of police officers, but what do you think this is doing to the idea of retaining police officers and also future recruitment? Because clearly they want to affect all of that. They want the police officers to quit and discuss. They don't want new guys to go into the forces. So is this working? You know, it's devastating. I mean, basically, I would still be working if Seattle wasn't the way it was. I got to the point that I couldn't do my job. I knew that if I had gotten into some kind of a situation where, you know, some, uh, you know, routine situation ended up in a use of force, the department in the city was not going to back me. In fact, not only not back me, they would take the side against me and maybe even prosecute me. I can't tell you the number of officers that are in situations where they've been fired or prosecuted for doing their job. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I know in Seattle, we've already lost 200, and they're saying there'll be another 150 by June. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Seattle, it took them a long time to get up to the 1380 that they needed to, in fact, Seattle's bigger than Boston, and yet they have about 800 fewer officers 
when they're allowed to have those officers or when they can, they can't keep them now. I mean, in the little town I live in now, which is a suburb of, of, of uh, Seattle, um, they're down to three officers. <laughs> they, even they can't attract officers. My partner, after 27 years on the department, he left when he only had three years left. He left to go to a sheriff's office nearby. It's I've never seen anything like it. it they are absolutely destroying because, you know, there's this you know long curve before you get a person from recruit to on the streets by themselves being able to do the job. Right. It's a long time and a lot of uh, education and a lot of training and a lot of testing. And uh, and people are just not applying anymore. They just, They just don't want to do this job. You can't blame them. You cannot blame oh, them. But no. when you're talking about three officers for one community, how many people are we talking about, basically? I mean, round figure. Well, we're small in this community. We're, like I say, we're a suburb, and we're, we're only about 4,000 people in this little town. But um, you think about three officers, what, what can they do? They can <sighs> put one officer per eight-hour shift. And, of course, they can't do seven days a week. They need time off. Wow. So maybe that puts the chief in the streets and trying to, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, people have always liked to come to this little town to, for law enforcement, maybe after they've, um, you know, retired from a bigger agency. And uh, now, you know, I mean, I just heard about that yesterday. That's, and it, it shocked me because I, so many officers are leaving Seattle to go to other agencies where when I came on the department, um, Seattle was like, the major league baseball and the other cities were were the minor leagues and they would they would try to work their way up into seattle and then probably halfway through my career uh, after wto it turned around and started going the other way oh it makes you sick because the people yeah, who, really ne- who need the help are not going to get it it's disgusting what do we do about this steve i mean it, it sometimes feels a little hopeless when you look at the situation right. and all the power of the left and the media which won't do the kind of reporting that you're doing in your great book is there any hope here? What do we do? Oh, I think there's a lot of hope. What, what I like to think about, uh, and it seems like we're probably on the on the shores of the, the Delaware like every day. Yeah. <laughs> I try to think of what Washington went through. And when he looked ahead and saw those storm clouds and, and you know, nobody, what, what, what person in the right mind would think they could get through that? And yet he did. And, and he, he, br- he brought it through. And a lot of people, you know, so it was divine providence. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, uh, I'm waiting for a little, I tell my wife that I'm not hugely religious, but I'm saying, when's the divine providence coming? Yes. I'm waiting for it. Yes. And, um, and, and I don't think you even have to be religious necessarily to think that way, you know, because we're the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh-huh. you know, they, they formed a country that we want to live in. And we want to continue. And there's so many people, you know, on the other side, they don't. They, I tell people, too, that we're not against uh, political opponents anymore. We're against cultural enemies. And that's a different thing. We can't think that they're going to suddenly see the light and come over to our side. That's not what, they, what they're about. No. They want to change what we have. Well, they do. And in the meantime, you're getting the woke military and you're getting critical race theory shoved down the throats of kids in schools across America. And it's very demoralizing for a lot of people. Tell people what you think the end goal is for these people. Why are doing why are they doing this? Well, I think think what they want to do, like, for instance, if you look at Antifa, you go to their site and this is their motto. Liberation begins where America dies. Well, how are you going to, you know, appease or you know compromise or negotiate with that? You can't. You can't. No. It's absolutely ridiculous that they do that, and that's what we're seeing in Seattle. I mean, part of the reason I left too was uh, they they were um, forced indoctrinating police officers in what we're calling now critical race theory, which I call critical revenge theory. Yes. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. And they were doing that. I mean, they were forcing police officers to go to this. 
And I know um, I got investigated for seven months for writing articles in our union newspaper. And, you know, they weren't attacking anybody harshly. It was just uh, opposing the critical race theory indoctrination of police officers. And yet they investigated me for seven months. And they used those resources. And, of course, they weren't going to find anything wrong because there's a little thing called the First Amendment. And, yes, it does apply to cops. Yes, And I'm trying to remind cops. That's part of the reason for this book, too. Trying to remind cops and people that police officers do have First Amendment rights and they should exercise them. Absolutely. Well, you got to read it. The Obama Gang. Steve Popper from the National Police Association. And, Steve, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for what you're doing to inform all the rest of us. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Janet. All right. God bless you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Pray for Israel, now more than ever, perhaps. It's really disconcerting and upsetting, I think, daily to look at what President Biden is doing on the one hand and isn't doing on the other. I don't really think he knows what's going on, to tell you the truth. And I'm not trying to be mean in saying that. I just don't think he knows what's going on. It seems the only subject that can safely let him address is vaccines. That seems to be the only subject that he really enjoys discussing, which is COVID. Oh, man, masks, vaccination, you, you get a, either get a vaccine or, you know, prepare not to get back to your life or, you know, your choice. No, 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 no. Now comes this issue of what's going on over in Israel, uh, being the target of operations from Hamas. And now they're, you know, going down on the Hamas tunnels and destroying those. And, and you know, on we go, on we go. And first we had President Biden expressing his desire for an Israeli ceasefire of operations against Hamas after all these leftist Democrats criticized his support of Israel. And then, you know, he just kind of flip-flops a little bit. Breitbart says Biden spoke with Netanyahu Monday afternoon, walking back his support for Israel's aggressive response in Palestine to Hamas rocket attacks. The Israeli military response against Hamas continued this week. And the White House relayed that the president expressed his support for a ceasefire. And that was a change from Biden's call on Saturday, in which the White House noted Biden shared his grave concern about the intercommunal violence across Israel, but made no mention of his support for a ceasefire. Then we had an update yesterday that he spoke to Netanyahu on Monday night, expressing support for Israel's right to defend itself, but at the same time calling for a ceasefire. Do you really think he knows what's going on? And here's the bigger picture on all this. As Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, was quoted as saying in an interview over the weekend, the increased attacks, as Newsmax points out, aimed at Israel are a direct result of the Biden administration's mistake in going back to the same failed policy, in the words of Pompeo, of the Obama administration. He said, now the Hamas terrorists firing into Israel, I can't believe that the Biden administration is headed back to the same failed policy that they had for eight years with respect to Iran and the larger Middle East. He pointed to the funding coming from Iran in bolstering Iranian proxy forces in an effort to wipe out Israel 
Pompeo told the host the Iranians have made clear they have genocidal intent. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the planet and they use proxy forces, people like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. The Israelis must defend themselves. Pompeo rejected the heck of a deal of the Iranians writing checks to Hamas as it holds Americans hostage for ransom. Pompeo regrettably expects President Biden to pay, ostensibly funding Middle East terrorism just months after President Trump signed multiple peace deals in the region. Uh, Absolutely incredible. He said this makes the United States, uh, it, it puts, this is the way he said it, but I'll correct it. It puts the United States, he said, in a very awkward position of using U.S. taxpayer resources to support organizations that are terrorizing Israel. Terrific. Noting the relief money's fungible and will wind up in the hands of corrupt leaders who will give it to those organizing terror campaigns. He said it's why Trump and the team around him got it right. He said, we deny the Palestinians any money coming from the U.S. We put real pressure on the regime in Iran. We took down their economy in a way that denied them the ability to underwrite exactly these kinds of programs. And then he again rebuked the Obama administration for paying Iran $150 billion all in, and now the Biden administration entertaining payments of a release for hostages. Well, America... This is what you get. Maybe not because you would actually have to believe that the election was on the up and up and you had a legitimate number of 80 million Americans saying, yeah, Biden's my guy. Uh, Not buying it. I'm still not buying it. That's a whole nother show. At any rate, this is where we are. This is what's going on. And I find this angle, the violence and the attacks that are going on against Israel to be yet another opportunity for leftist evangelicals to try to sway the church. Now, I have talked about this at various times over the years, how you have seen over the last decade or so, maybe longer, leftist evangelicals moving in and trying to equivocate and do an on the one hand, on the other hand, with the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, you know, you really shouldn't support Israel. Israel's bad, too. And, you know, All this kind of stuff, this is what leftists do. But here's an example of this. Relevant Magazine, which is, in my mind, anything but, did an interview with Todd Dethridge, who's co-founder of the Telos Group. They describe it as an organization that seeks to inform and equip people to be peacemakers in troubled situations. Yeah, what are you going to do? Drop people down on the Gaza Strip and have them... (laughs) come together and you're going to do a Jimmy Carter? Yeah, I don't think so. According to their website, Telos wants to help people envision a world in which leaders and their communities claim the requisite drive, expertise, and relationships to effectively and relentlessly wage peace. The group champions the idea of mutual flourishing. Yeah, we, we want Hamas to flourish. Right, Todd, we want Hamas to flourish, just like Israel. The idea that nobody has to lose for peace to be achieved. Do you understand anything about what's going on in Israel? Well, Dethridge talked to Relevant about where most American Christians tend to go wrong in their understanding of what's happening in Gaza and the difference between hope and optimism. Oh, okay. But for Todd Dethridge, we'd all be in the dark. He says there's context that's required to help us begin to understand what's really going on. So Relevant asks him, what are some of the misconceptions you find American Christians have about this situation? And he said, what I saw when I really began to work on this was how much American Christians care about what happens there and the way they care about it often translates into direct action and U.S. policies that actually often make the conflict harder to solve. Well, 
I don't know. I think Trump did a pretty good job, don't you think? In the Middle East, you got all kinds of Arab nations all of a sudden signing on, getting behind Israel. The Abraham Accords, that was pretty unique. That was pretty good. There was some flourishing going on there. He goes on to say, we often care about it in ways that are not connected to the humanity of everybody there. What I really began to see as a Christian is that there's a lot of ways Christians think about what goes on there. And often those things have led us to a way in which our faith has been weaponized against people there. Excuse me? Our faith has been weaponized? What? What does that even mean? American Christians are weaponizing Christianity against Israel slash the Palestinians slash Hamas. What what is he even talking about? We're not weaponizing anything. What I've been working on for the last many years is helping Christians understand how would Jesus have us engage in conflict resolution in places where people are in these seemingly intractable situations. Do you notice how this is all very vague? It's all just very vague. You know, we want flourishing, human flourishing. We want peace. We want we want to negotiate goodwill and all these wonderful good feelings and and come together in intractable intractable situations. Listen, he goes on to say Christians have to overcome this idea that this is a zero sum game. Oh, really? That one side has to win over the other. Right. I mean, I guess we're supposed to be for the terrorists and also against them. That sounds like a terrific position. Thank you, Todd Dethridge. Most Christians self-identify as very pro-Israel. No, they don't self-identify as very pro-Israel. They support Israel. They're not self-identifying. This isn't a transgender situation. They love Israel. They love the Bible. They understand God's plan for his people. And they understand this is the only democracy in the Middle East. This is the only Jewish state on earth. And we want to support them for myriad reasons, for political reasons, for theological reasons, for human reasons. We're not self-identifying as very pro-Israel. Then he says, often the definition that they're operating under, though, is one that's necessarily very anti-Palestinian. Okay, let me just throw something into the mix here. You need to understand that this group is funded by George Soros. It's funded by George Soros. And I go back to JNS.org, a story that they did back in 2014, asking the question, do funders like George Soros pose a threat to evangelical Christian support for Israel? You bet. And here it is, guys. Here it is. On the one hand, but on the other hand... This isn't happening in a vacuum. And and they're out there. The Telos group is out there on Twitter supporting this book. Oh, this is great. And they're talking about us in this book. And Brian McLaren and Shane Claiborne, the leftist emergence are there. Their names are on the title of the book. Who do you think is going, pushing us in the direction away from Israel? These leftist evangelicals, and they're getting some outside help. We're going to tell you more about it. And... You're going to get to hear what's really going on over there in the Middle East. We'll be right back. Emmy was in a bad relationship when she found out she was pregnant. Her boyfriend told her to get an abortion, which she seriously considered. I knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Emmy went to a pre-born center in need of guidance. They honestly were able to put every fear at ease and let me know that it was going to be okay. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. 
Preborn clinics introduce moms in crisis to their babies through ultrasound while providing hope, love, and the gospel of Jesus Christ in action. Would you join Preborn in helping more moms choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies from abortion. And this month, through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I was telling you about this Relevant Magazine article with the head of the Telos Group. You know, this conflict between Israel and Palestine, it's just also head scratching because there's so much equivalence. There's so much moral equivalence over there. And Israel's just as bad as Hamas, apparently. And here's how you can actually fight for peace. You need to understand that you need to stop weaponizing your Christianity when you support Israel and you stand against Islamic Jihad and terrorism. And these people who want Israel wiped off the map and Iran and its involvement with the Palestinians and the funding that goes back and forth and the end goal that all of these people have for Israel. And then you need to put it side by side with your Bible and figure it out. Don't go to leftist evangelicals to tell you, oh, it's all just kind of, you know, we need to love everybody. Listen, nobody hates the Palestinians. We understand like at the Christ at the Checkpoint conference, which hasn't taken place this year because of COVID. And that's a good thing. But they're always trotting out the leftist evangelicals from America. And they had, you know, Lynn Hybels and that whole crew. And I think Tony Campolo's made an appearance there. Various leftists over the years. And what they're trying to do is really undermine Christian support for Israel. They want to take every Everything that American Christians, Bible-believing Christians have held to because of what the Word of God says and destroy it. Again, we're back to the same line of deconstruction. That's what it's all about. The show that I did recently with Alex McFarlane on this whole topic is what you need to go back and listen to because that's what's going on, folks. The ex-evangelical movement, the people who are slamming their quote-unquote fundamentalist upbringings and how horrible it was and they're getting sob stories in the Atlantic and the Washington Post and the pages of Christianity Today to weep and wail and moan about how horrible it was growing up in conservative Christianity. You never get to hear anybody who came out of the main line who got saved and says, let me tell you about the nonsense, the social justice garbage that was shoved down my throat when I was a kid. And thank the Lord, he 
made a way for me to hear the gospel through a friend of mine. And I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I came out of that social justice nonsense. And, you know, folks, I've mentioned this before, but my mom was one of those people. I've got that in my own personal story about how social justice destroyed people in my family through their churches. This is not new stuff. And I get very riled up about it because it involves people I love. So I'm not going to put up with it. But let's go back to the funding here. Because George Soros, as JNS.org reported back in March of 2014, is behind funding some of this stuff. Let's go back to this story. This is from Sean Savage asking, do funders like George Soros pose a threat to evangelical Christian support for Israel? Well, it goes into this whole thing. And then he says, among those targeting younger and more liberal minded groups like new evangelicals is an organization called the Telos Group, which is funded by Soros, the billionaire liberal philanthropist. According to a report by the Jerusalem based watchdog group NGO Monitor, Soros, who is Jewish, has been a frequent critic of Israel and does not support Zionism, but he's funded a number of anti-Israel organizations aimed at delegitimizing Israel on the global stage, shifting U.S. public opinion against Israel and promoting fringe political opposition groups inside Israel. And emerging from this pattern of funding by Soros has been an effort to undermine support for Israel among evangelical Christians. Thanks to funding from individuals such as Soros, the effort to separate the Christian community from Israel has intensified in recent years. This is from David Brogg at Christians United for Israel. The Talos group, some say, has been leading this anti-Zionist effort with Soros' financial support. NGO Monitor reports that Talos received a $238,000 grant in 2010 from the Soros-founded Foundation to Promote Open Society to train Israeli and Palestinian civil society leaders and human rights activists on effective engagement with U.S. policymakers and the public and to facilitate relationship building between partners and leading U.S. policymakers. So these Telos group tours of Israel are carefully calibrated to convince these young people that Israel and Israel alone is to blame for the conflict and its human toll. Hmm. Now, going back in the story camera, this group that that is with this man, Van, Van Zyl, I can't remember his first name, but he took issue with this pro-peace messaging by Telos. He insisted that it's a cover for anti-Israel bias. Anti-Israel bias. Telos, by the way, uh, is not just this death ridge that I told you about, but also Gregory Khalil, a Palestinian evangelical Christian. Uh, they founded the Telos group. And camera a spokesman here said Telos group purports to promote a pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace agenda. But the problem is that this slogan has become a cover for broadcasting a lot of misinformation that invariably cuts against Israel. So let's go to Lori Cardoza Moore. She's head of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, a pro-Israel group, Christian woman. And she's had a very good you know, little spiel here online on their little TV segment talking about the misinformation. And she's trying to set the record straight on what's been going on. Listen to cut one. There are lies being spread that Israel started this. This was not Israel's doing. This battle over the land, the buildings in East Jerusalem are owned by Jews, have been owned by Jews for 50 years. And these people that are living in these buildings are Arabs and they are not paying their rent. And now the people that own these buildings have had to petition their government, their court in order to get compensated 
for the renters who have been living for 50 years and never paid their rent. Had they paid their rent 50 years ago, we wouldn't be in this situation. So let's just be clear as to what this is and what this is not. Interesting. How much have you heard about that? How much have you heard about that? I haven't heard a whole lot about that, but that's what's going on. And then she goes on to talk about how Arabs are actually attacking and killing Jews amid the missiles that are coming into Israel at the hands of Hamas. Listen to cut two. Secondly, we are watching, we're witnessing pogroms going on, modern day pogroms in Israeli neighborhoods by Arabs. They are attacking and beating and killing Jews. On top of the pogroms, we have a daily barrage coming out of Gaza, attacking Israel. In fact, we know that Iran has put its missiles in Gaza, don't know how they got there because there's supposed to be an embargo on weapons and concrete and other items like that that can't get into Gaza, which is led by Hamas. And who is Hamas? Well, you should ask Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. They'll tell you, or no, they won't tell you. They're terrorists. In fact, they think that they're legitimate and they're right to be able to do what they're doing. But what they also aren't telling you is all the collateral damage, all the innocent children, men and women who are being murdered in Gaza are because of the attacks launched by the militant group, the terrorist group, out of buildings, and there are innocent people in there. Yeah, and and what if AP, by the way, having its offices in the same building as Hamas? Don't don't they have reporters who should ferret stuff out like that? (laughs) We're going to trust your reporters, but you didn't even know that you were in the same building as Hamas. And Israel was terrible, just terrible for having gone after Hamas. Ridiculous. One more cut from Lori Cardoza Moore. This is cut three. The Israeli Defense Forces have dropped, they've done um, roof knocks, they've dropped leaflets to let the citizens know, the people, get out of Dodge because we're coming in. Now, does Hamas do that when they decide to launch their barrage of missiles? No, of course not. They don't want to warn the people because they want to kill Jews. That's their goal. So ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, we should, number one, we have to pray. We have to pray because only God Almighty himself can intervene on our behalf because it sure isn't going to be the Biden administration. It's sure not going to be Congress or the Senate because we don't have control of it over it. No, instead, we have leadership that is going to sit back and to allow innocent civilians to be targeted annihilation. Well, there you have it. And Lori is a very good source on all of this. She's on top of everything that's happening in Israel and calling us all as believers in Jesus Christ to pray for the peace of Israel as we should. We absolutely should. But it bugs me to no end to see the media in this country not telling us the truth nonstop. It's very, very frustrating. I find myself growing ever more weary of deception. And you know who the father of lies is. You know who the father of lies is. Don't ever forget that you have an enemy who loves nothing more than to deceive you. 
He wants to deceive you about everything that the Lord has told you in his word, about his promises to you, the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of those important prophecies that tell us exactly what will happen in the end times. And I really do believe we are in the last days. The apostles believe they were in the last days. How much further are we along on that calendar? than they were back then. So do pray for Israel and pray for the American church. Boy, do we need a revival. Boy, do we need some strong, mighty men and women of God who are just going to stand on the word no matter what and not be deceived by some of these Soros-funded new evangelical groups that would constantly try to get us off course and take us away from supporting the land of Israel. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you tuning in every single day. We'll see you next time. God bless.